Hello, this is the Pod Goblin's Hat, a podcast about the Moomins. This is episode 12, which is about being bored, bad smells, and unwanted guests. I'm Nina, a person who would never invite myself into somebody else's house. And I'm Dave, a person who likes their journeys to be eventful, but not too dangerous. And we're reading all the way through Tuve Janssen's Moomin's books together. It's the first time for me. Whereas if I wrote my memoirs, the Moomins would be featured pretty regularly. We're starting by reading the storybooks for children in order of publication, and eventually we will cover all of Tuve Janssen's Moomin stories. Listeners, you'll be relieved to know that Nick Funns has returned, stowed away in a place that no one knew he was. So was he in the pile of clothes? Well, he was in a pile of clothes, but then he made his way from that pile of clothes to being within a piece of clothing. It turned out he was in my sleeve of a piece of clothing I don't wear as much as other clothing. So so how do you get in there? I mean, he moved. He moves of his own accord. Yeah. This is not the first time Nick Funds has gone rogue. This is the longest period of time. And every time he goes rogue, it's always possible he'll never come back. He might be evil, but on one level, he does have some connection to his lineage of snuffkins. Are you pleased he's back? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely pleased he's back. At the beginning, I hated him. But now, if he ever goes missing permanently, I'll be super sad. Yeah. We are continuing our brief diversion into looking at the picture books. So today we're reading The Dangerous Journey and Villain in the Moomin House, which is also known as The Unwanted Guest. The Villain in the Moomin House slash Unwanted Guest has no official translation into English, which is why it also doesn't have an official English language title. We have found an unofficial translation by... Teresa Ronina. I don't know if that's how we say your name, Teresa. I'm very sorry if it's not. We will provide a link for you to listener to go and read that unofficial translation, which we thought was very good. Yeah. But we're going to start with The Dangerous Journey, which is translated by Sophie Hanna, the same person who translated both books we read last week. Our theme for all the books is relationships, and our theme for these two books is magical worlds. So this first one, The Dangerous Journey, 
came out in 1977. That's a really interesting thing about both of these books. They both came out after the entire Moomin series of storybooks for children had ended. So they're both post-Moomin books. Yeah. And they came out after Tuve's love affair with her own characters had kind of ended. The Daedrus Journey, again, the ones that both of us have got are the sort of books... Yeah, you can't get this in another edition, I don't think. Not in English. So it's another one of those lost books that have sort of been brought out out of an adult nostalgic appetite for all things Moomin and not really aimed at modern children, I would say. It could also be that Tuve herself didn't really think about her readership when she wrote this particularly. The Dangerous Journey is also the only Moomin book she wrote where she did the art first and the words came later. And I think you can tell that as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense. It's a very, very beautiful book and the art is very strange and interesting. And I would say the story is slightly less interesting than the pictures. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I can't even say I fully understand the story. I'm looking forward to the synopsis. The Dangerous Journey is another story with like a one-off protagonist that I don't think we see anywhere else. She's called Susanna. She's a little human girl with very white blonde hair and a black cat. And she's sitting around with the cat and the cat is being really boring because he won't do anything but sleep. And she thinks, this is too boring. I don't really like this. I would like awful things to happen. So she takes off her glasses and then her real glasses disappear and some different magical glasses come. When she puts on these new magical glasses, the world is transformed. The first thing you notice is that the normal, warm, placid cat becomes a horrible cat that wants to scratch her and eat her up. But also the whole landscape is transformed into this kind of apocalyptic kind of thing. She looks at herself in a reflecting pool. She herself looks monstrous and scary. She continues on her journey through some very Tolkienish eagles and mountains type things. She runs into a Hermulan and Hermulan is hanging out with Thingamy and Bob and they were having a nice walk but now everything's changed. And Susanna's like, oh everything's changed because of me. That was my doing. Sorry about that. And she also sorts of starts to play with the determinism of this book. So she gets a bit scared when she first sees the Hermulin and his friends. But she says in her head, like, oh, I've worked out how this works now. If I want them to be nice, if I think they're nice, they will be. So she starts to take a little bit of ownership of the story. Apocalyptic things continue. They come across a great big volcano. Sniff comes running away, a weirdly massive sniff, as big as a Hermulin, with his tail on fire, comes running away. The volcano is also surrounded by hundreds of Hattie Fatners who are not helping Sniff, though they should. At some point, they meet the dog Soryu as well, whose surname is... Moni Mug. Soryu is a character who has already appeared by this stage in the Moomin books. We won't meet him till next season. The carry-on 
the sort of apocalyptic landscape changes to be sort of this massive blizzard. The Hemilin's balloon pops. Everybody's very cold and uncomfortable and they find this little den where Snufkin is playing cards with another character and they're having sprout and onion soup and our sort of cold adventurers are like, oh yeah, soup, great idea. So they go in and they play cards with them and they have the soup. The soup, because it's so high fibre, I guess, immediately gives Sniff a tummy ache. Sounds like a good soup though. Brussels sprout and onion soup is definitely in my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess maybe Sniff isn't used to eating much fibre on his diet of jam and pancakes. Probably true, yeah. Then they feel like they're being chased by like something roaring with loads of arms and legs. And Sniff's like, I can't run, I've got a sore tummy. There's waterfalls. Like, basically, this book is a series of really beautiful landscapes. Yes. So now we're at waterfalls and stuff, and what should Hove interview but a red and yellow hot air balloon and two Tiki invites them in for a ride and it's great because the sea level is rising again so everybody gets in they float over the sea but they're very heavy because there's a bunch of them sniff goes a bit fat phobic and blames the hemulin for being too heavy two Tiki's like no no you just need to like drop all the rocks that you've got and he's like but my jewels my garnets <laughs> and she's like no drop it so they drop all the jewels and somebody says to Sniff, remember that everything you've lost, you'll find in Moomin Valley. They float over Moomin Valley. It's like this beautiful watercolour picture of Moomin Valley. They land. Moomin Mama is ready to welcome them. Everybody's ready to have a party. I believe there is raspberry juice somewhere. And that's the end of the dangerous journey. Susanna leaves, refinds her cat, her cat, which has gone back to being a normal cat. And they return to their own world. The end. Yeah, I mean, now you put it like that, it seems weird for me to say I don't understand what the story is. Looking at the pictures and having you tell the story really brought home the story to me. The reason I don't or didn't is partly to do with the writing style. Yeah. The writing style is very based around rhymes. It's very dense. Stuff doesn't always make full sense. Yeah. With the Hemilin as well as Sorry Ooh, the dog is also Thingamy and Bob. And Thingamy and Bob get a lot of dialogue. Yes. And that is quite confusing. Yeah, because they've got their own little language. They talk a lot. Yeah. It's also strange as a Moomins fan, even within the Moomins, which plays fast and loose with continuity and sizes. Yes. This is really playing fast and loose. Like They've made Sniff enormous. Thingamy and Bob, like they don't even look like the same creatures. Also, it's more like meta mm. we're in the real world and then we go into the moomin world and then it kind of comments on the fact it's a story in numerous ways yeah it's trying to be a lot of stuff i found in terms of the writing style for me just really took me out in a way that the other picture books haven't i think you should read some aloud to show what that's like cat yawned and didn't answer her susanna felt quite sick he made so little effort it was getting on her wick. Susanna took her glasses off in order to escape from the sight of her annoying pet's contented napping shape. What was this? Another pair of glasses had appeared, yet nobody had put them there. Weird, thought Susanna. Weird. I mean, that is already quite difficult. From then on, it kind of has this structure, which is like long, and then it ends with a short kind yeah. of couplet. The structure wasn't really doing it for me. I didn't really see its point. I agree. What I suspect has happened is Sophie Hannah has stuck very faithfully 
to the original shape of the lines and the poetry element of it, where really, I think, if you were wanting to update and make this book compelling to a younger audience now, I would have done a much, much looser translation with far fewer words. Yep. Or even no words, this would actually work quite well as a wordless picture book. Yes, I think that's true. And there aren't any of the things that we were talking about in the last episode in terms of interactivity. No. There's nothing really here. This is a very strange text. I would say I did not enjoy it. Mm. I mean, I enjoy the pictures. I didn't enjoy the experience of reading a children's story and not fully understanding what's happening. Yeah. As a Moomins fan, this book has a different parallel story, which I found really interesting. Okay. So what's really fascinating for me is all of the storybooks that we're reading through are in this book. Yes. So the first moment of this starts off very Alice in Wonderland with the cat and stuff. It's Alice through the looking glass. That's right. My favourite of the two. But then... The next page, the bit that Nina referred to of her looking into the water and seeing a kind of monster, that's the flood. Yeah. It's the same colours. There is a flood. It's kind of watercolory. Mm-hmm. Then when we get to the Tolkien page, that's Comet and Moominland. Dried up sea. Yeah. Then we meet Hemilin, Thingamy and Bob. So this is becoming Finn Family Moomin Troll. Yeah. Thingamy and Bob are in Finn Family Moomin Troll and they're friends with a Hemilin. And it sort of stays there for a little bit. Then when we have the volcano, of course, that is Midsummer Madness. Yeah. Then we get into the winter for Moominland Midwinter. And the Groke is there, who's also in that book. Sorry, Ooh is a character from Moominland Midwinter. And there's a Hemilin in Moominland Midwinter who has got a relationship with Sorry, Ooh. Right. Then we get to Snufkin. So I think that that is where we are with Moominland in November. And then from then on... We go to Moomin Papa at sea. Oh, is that what the hot air balloon thing is? Yeah, I think that's right. the sea. It gets okay. all jumbled by that point. Tutiki's a midwinter character, so it's interesting that she comes in over the sea. I think we're supposed to be getting jumbled. I think Tuve is getting jumbled yes. herself. Yes. This is her journey, and she's almost Susanna going through all of her books. The logic stops working, and it kind of falls apart. And then it's a children's book, it's a movement's book, so there is a happy-ish ending. With a party. But not that happy. Mm, yeah. Not that happy an ending. I wonder if the monster that is chasing them is the Moomins. Yeah. Because the Moomins are kind of chasing her at this point. Yes. She's having to make another Moomins book. And she didn't want to anymore. I mean, we'll get to the reasons why when we get to the last of the books, but she's got a lot of personal life stuff that's happened to her by this stage. The stuff that the Moomins reminded her of, particularly her mother, who's now passed away, is no longer safe and happy for her. Yeah. And so I wonder if the monster is kind of the Moomins chasing her. And then it ends in this very meta way. Like, I think that Susanna has journeyed through the Moomin books. And she's decided to leave. And she passes comment on their relatively ambiguous ending. Whether things turned out okay, she's never going to know. When adventure comes your way, enjoy it. Let it go. Yeah. And I feel like Tuve's almost talking to the readers of the Moomins books who've probably been bothering her. Let the Moomins go. They've been saying, like, what happens at the end of Moomin Valley in November? Yeah. And this is her way of saying to them and to her, let it go. Oh, that's cool. I really like that reading. 
I've done a lot of research about the influences on this book. So have you heard of the artist John Bauer? No. Okay, I'm going to send you a picture. The picture I've just sent Dave, listener, is called Princess Two Star, and it's by John Bauer. He did lots of illustrations of Scandinavian fairy tales, and this is the picture that is referenced in this book when Susanna is looking at herself in the water. Oh, wow. Well, I like that picture. It's a very gender-ambiguous fairy character. Yes. So I'm going to tell you the story now of Princess Toothstar because it also sheds a bit of light on what Moomin Troll was doing when he was hiding Moomin Mama and the Snork Maiden's jewellery in the pond. Shall we just describe the picture before we do that? So it's a really darkened forest with a kind of mirror-like water in front. So it kind of feels a little bit like the myth of Narcissus in Mm -hmm. Greek myths. And it's a fairy-like character, creature, human-ish body. Yeah. But it's ambiguously gendered, like you can't see the genitals, you don't know the gender really of this creature. The person has a flat chest, they're prepubescent. Indeed. They've got really long, blonde hair going all the way down, at least to their waist, but maybe further than that. Yeah. And they're kind of kneeling, looking down at their reflection. And the reflection is of them, but it's kind of blurred. And so you don't fully see what is there. It's a really good picture. It is. So John Bauer was a big inspiration for Tuve Janssen. She really liked his work. He did loads of illustrations of fairy tales, especially. And this one is Princess Toothstar. So Princess Toothstar was a very good little princess with very, very blonde hair who made friends with a moose called Longleap and wanted to go out into the world and sort of spread her goodness and innocence around. So he's like, all right, you can get on my back, but you must hold on. You must really hold on because bad things live in the forest and sometimes they will try and take the goodness away from you and the innocence away from you. So you must hold on. She gets on his back. She's holding on to his antlers. They're running through the forest. She gets distracted. There are like witches and like trolls and stuff. And so she stops holding on and a witch of some kind like rips the dress off. So that's why the princess is not wearing any clothes. Her dress gets ripped off and then they go to this like beautiful reflecting pool and the princess bends over to look at herself in it. And the heart shaped necklace that she wears that her mother has given her falls off over her neck into the pool. And she goes, oh, my heart, I've lost my heart. And Long Leap the Moose is like, I told you this wasn't a very good idea. We should really come away. I'm worried about you in this forest. And she's like, can I just look a bit longer? And he's like, you really shouldn't stare into that pool after your heart. You'll never find it. You'll lose yourself. He starts like bringing her food and water and stuff because she can't leave. And eventually she stays there so long that she becomes a piece of cotton grass with a fluffy yellow top which is what two star means. It's cotton grass. So I was thinking the bit of jewellery in the pond and sort of losing yourself, melancholy, heartless, you've lost your heart, you're staring into a pond. That's where we find Moomin Troll at the beginning of Moomin Summer Madness. He's hidden all the jewellery in the pond. He's staring into it in a really dejected way. He's lost his heart. He's pining away. So I feel like that was another reference to this same story. Right. Another European story that I thought really influenced this is Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. The source material for Frozen, of course. Is it? It is, indeed. Okay. You are familiar with the magic mirror 
in Hans Christian Andersen. I am. But the listeners might not be, so you should still tell us. I'm going to read to you listeners and Dave. Hans Christian Andersen, really weird. Do like him, but very weird. So this is the first chapter of The Snow Queen, which is told in seven chapters. First story, which treats of the mirror and fragments. Look you, now we're going to begin. When we are at the end of the story, we shall know more than we do now. For he was a bad goblin. He was one of the very worst, for he was a demon. One day, he was in very good spirits, for he had made a mirror which had this peculiarity, that everything good and beautiful that was reflected in it shrank together into almost nothing, but that whatever was worthless and looked ugly became prominent and looked worse than ever. The most lovely landscapes seen in this mirror looked like boiled spinach, and the best people became hideous. Now I'll show you the illustration. Oh, wow, that's another great illustration. Yeah, I'll I'll put it in the show notes, listeners, but there's a great illustration by Catherine Beverly of two beautiful people looking at themselves in the mirror and being distorted and stuff. So I'm going to stop the reading there. But what happens in The Snow Queen is that this mirror shatters and that little pieces of it get lodged in people's eyes and hearts and give them this really bleak outlook. I'm going to argue that Susanna's second pair of glasses are made of this mirror. She wants to see everything horrible and nothing beautiful. That's right. She wants evil. Like She wants wickedness. And when she puts on the second pair of glasses, this is the same lens that makes everything look ugly and dark and weird and dangerous. Yeah. And obviously it's also a reference to Alice going through the looking glass and how everything is different there. Alice through the looking glass starts almost exactly the same way. Alice is hanging out with her cat and her cat's kittens... And she's telling the kittens off. That's right. And she's really bored. So those are the three sort of big influences that I saw on this text. I be your mirror, reflect what you are, in case you don't know. I be the wind, the rain and the sunset, the light on your door, to show that you're home. When you think the night has seen your mind, that inside you twisted and unkind Let me stand to show that you are blind Please put down your hands Cause I see you The Hobbity page, I wanted you to talk about a little bit I'm not a Tolkien fan, but it's very Hobbity, right? It is very Hobbity, it's true, and... Tuve did do the illustrations for a version of The Hobbit. I think she probably will have done that by now. Yeah, she's done that by now. So she might just be cribbing from her own sheet on that. I feel like a lot of what she does in this is a retrospective. I mean, it's interesting Mm. what you say, the looking into the water, which is a very flood-based picture, is also a reference from a different book, Moving Summer Madness, right? Yeah. That happens in different places, like Sniff refers to... The Bad Old Days of Burning His Tail, which I guess is a Comet in Moominland reference, but I think that happens in the volcano. Yeah. So everything is blurring together, and I suspect that she's even folding in her non-Moomin stuff with The Hobbit. And with Alice. And with Alice, which she also did, yeah. Yeah. It feels like a maturer person's work, Mm. the older you get, the work often becomes about what was before. And like yeah. reevaluating them and yeah. reseeing them. And I think this is what's happening in this book. Like power flurries through the air into the ground. 
I think we should talk a little bit more about the art style. I mean, the art is good. It's really good. It's watercolour and pencil, I think, so it's not at all as clean and sort of line drawing as what she does in the storybooks, but it's not even as clean, I would say, as the picture books we've done before. It's really smudgy. The thing it looks like most is Flood. Yep. But there's no washes like Flood, so it even is different yeah. from Flood. And and sometimes as well, like the last picture of Susanna going back, you know, her hair and her skin, there's no outlines around them. Yeah. There's none of those lines that frame stuff. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite of the kind of drawings that she does for the storybooks that are all line. Yeah. Yeah, it does look great, but it doesn't necessarily look moominish. No, it doesn't. Not really, not at all. I mean, Soryu will be, when we get to it, like he's one of my favourite kind of characters in some ways in the books. At least his story is one of my favourite stories in the books. It's not really done justice to him in this book, nor I think a a thing of me and Bob done justice to. They're kind of not as good as they were, and it's a bit weird. The best character in this is Susanna. And I think it's because Tuve at this stage is so over her Moomin-adjacent characters. Things are bleeding together. I feel like the place this happens the most is with the Hemulin. He's initially seen as a scary monster and then becomes a very nice, maybe the main part of the party, like the the part that's keeping them all together. And I've got theories about the Hemulin. I've been thinking about this because the Hemulin started off, as we've covered, being kind of like autistic representation But then they become authority figures, aunts. Then they become police officers and prison guards. Hemilins are quite wildly different. But what I find is really interesting is that Hemilins are not all the same. And that is made very clear in this book because the Hemilin in this book is two different Hemilins pieced together. (laughs) And it doesn't make sense because the first Hemilin he is is the one we know who joined the Moomin family. And the other Hemulin is like is the one that's going to come up in Moominland midwinter. And those two Hemulins, they wouldn't get on. (laughs) They they, they wouldn't get on. So it's kind of really weird. It is fascinating to me that she she makes this character, he's clearly both those Hemulins. And she's just squished them together. Yeah. (laughs) I think maybe that's part of why this book creates feelings of unease is it's very sort of slidey it's very undefined you know like you said it hasn't even got outlines just all the colors are allowed to blur together it requires reading it in the same way that you would read a poem it's a series of impressions and landscapes and moods and feelings more than it is a story with a beginning a middle and an end yeah it's also like very meta is like commenting on itself. And I think one of the moments that it that is really brought home is when little Mai appears, when she sees Susanna, she says, look at her giggled little Mai. How strange. Why does she look exactly like a character you'd find inside a book? I know that's... <laughs> That is really interesting yeah. because I feel like Susanna's gone into a book when she put on her glasses. Yeah. But the characters inside the book see her as a character from a book. Yeah. So maybe books that the Moomins read are about people like us. Yeah. 
That's their fantasy. I like that. <laughs> I think I would have liked this book if it went full in on the meta yeah. stuff. One of my favourite kinds of stories is the story of the child going into a magical world that is like but not like their own. And that's what this book could have been. Yeah. And it almost is. It's not quite. But it's yeah. not quite. I have one thing I'd like to say that's positive about the work of Sophie Hanna in this book. I really enjoy the phrase, spitting frizz of rage. <laughs> that is good. It's great. I want to talk about the birds. Right. I just was noticing the birds looking at the picture now because we've got the closest ones are clearly owls, but the back ones might be marabou storks, right? I think they're cranes. Ah, that makes sense. I think they're either a whooping crane or a common Eurasian crane. They look more like a whooping crane, but those live only in North America. So maybe she went to North America or maybe she looked at photographs of North American birds. Or if it's a bird that she has seen, it's a common Eurasian crane. Cranes are super symbolic in a bunch of different belief systems and cultures. Right. But for the ones that are likely to have influenced Tuve at this point, I'm going to sort of confine myself to Europe. But I will say they mean something completely different in Hindu culture and in Japanese culture. I'm just not doing those right now. Cranes are sort of often seen as a symbol of prudence. You've probably heard the story of like, you know, cranes, they sleep on one foot. And the story is that, oh, they're very prudent. They're very careful. They're holding a stone in the other foot. And then if they completely fall asleep, they'll drop the stone and wake up. If you've seen them in heraldry on like medieval tapestries and stuff, they're always holding a stone in their foot. And in that guise, they're a symbol of prudence. And generally, people think of cranes as being very romantic because they have these long lives and mate for life and imagery for like Valentine's Day and stuff like that. But also they have this association with danger and murder because the poet was murdered on his way out of Corinth by a bunch of robbers and there was no one there to see it happen but the cranes. And so he called out to the cranes, avenge me, avenge me, like tell everybody that I've been murdered. The cranes follow his murderers and like caw and make horrible noises until eventually like the murderers are uncovered and punished for their crimes. So they also stand for like bad stuff happening, bad omens, that kind of stuff, which is I think what they're doing here. They're sort of in this very apocalyptic landscape. All of the birds, they morph. Yes. They sort of start off being less defined and then they become more defined and yeah. it's almost like their evolutions like the owl is kind of evolved from a blue shape and then it becomes an owl yeah blue swoop yeah the same thing happens with the cranes and it's even possible that the cranes become the owls yeah because there's like this middle crane that is in a similar position to what the owls are yeah and then the other page with birds, some of those birds look like they're almost flying upside down. Most of them do. Yes. And I mean, I don't know what that bird, it could, they could still be cranes. I think those are cranes too. Those are the ones that specifically look like hooping cranes. So that's the natural history corner for this book. And we're generally in agreement, unsuccessful as a children's book. Oh, yes. Very. Interesting as a Moomin fan.
moving from one inaccessible book to a differently inaccessible book in that this book is inaccessible in the sense that we can't access it. We have PDF translation by a fan, as was mentioned by Nina. Mm -hmm. So we've got some pictures and some text, but they're not like designed to be together in the same way that picture books often are. But a very simple story. Yeah. Uh, And this one is from 1980. So would you like to tell us what happens? So the story is a pretty simple one. And this version that we read is titled The Unwanted Guest. But the more common title seems to be A Villain in the Moomin House. So the book starts in the autumn and everybody is in bed in the Moomin House. There's a lot more people in the Moomin House than we've ever known before. Yeah. And it begins with little Mai rolling herself up into a blanket in a workshop. And what we discover here is that little Mai sleeps in a different place in the house every night because it makes her feel independent, (laughs) which I love. Uh, She wakes up, she hears a noise and she thinks, is it mice? And she goes to investigate and it becomes clear that there is something in the Moomin house that is not been invited she goes around different places there's a bad smell she's very suspicious but she's really excited she's convinced that this thing that's in the house is bad and that makes her really happy then moomin troll wakes up bumps into her they look for whatever this creature is together then grandpa grumble who is a character from moomin valley in november he is having a conference with an astronomer from comet in Moominland. <laughs> they're trying to work out what's going on too just basically everybody in the moomin house wakes up everybody is looking for this character or characters they don't know who it is there are broken chairs and the potatoes have all been spilled everywhere there are weird footprints finally they discover the creature they say come out the creature is under the sink with the compost bucket moomin papa gets up he recognizes the smell and it turns out that the person in the moomin house is a character called stinky who in this book is a pirate and moomin papa knows stinky because moomin papa is a secret pirate himself (laughs) it seems At least a villain goes out in the boat with Stinky quite regularly to get up to mischief. Everyone's like, how can you have a secret? And Moomin Papa's like, you've all got secrets. And everyone's like, yeah, good point. Fair enough, fair enough. Let's not mention our secrets. And Stinky's like, I know all your secrets, actually. And they're like, don't say it. And they're like, oh, do you? Don't say any of our secrets, but I guess you can stay if you know all our secrets. And so they just let stinky stay with them in the moomin house yeah and that's basically the end of the story yeah there's a lot of prose this is a prose story there's a lot of character stuff where we learn little bits about the different characters one of the things i was going to say about this book is it's very interesting because stinky is a character from the comics okay stinky is in the first comic i don't think he's ever in the storybooks (laughs) he is in this picture book But as we'll get into, this is maybe not a canon picture book. Mm. It's a very ambiguous book. But this picture book is a very uncanon Moomin house. It's very (laughs) confusing in so many ways. So Nina, do you want to tell a little bit about not just what it looks like, what is it? Yeah, so it's a photograph picture book. So all the pictures are photographs. Basically, Tova and... 
Tuliki and Penty and their friends built a doll's house model of the Moomin house. And Hans Klinghand made the Moomin figurines. Tuliki made the other figurines. Tova painted the faces on the Moomin figurines. The photography is by Tuve's brother, Per Olof Janssen. During the construction of this physical model house, lots of friends and acquaintances searched out and gave little gifts and dining sets and extra miniature things. Little blankets and slippers and cups. And it's a much bigger Moomin house, I feel like, than the Moomin house is. It's got extra bits. I don't believe that there's a lighthouse in the original Moomin's book. No, I don't think so either. So, yeah, it's a very strange higgledy-piggledy everything thrown in. It looks super different to all the other books. And the characters look different too because, I mean, the characters were made by someone else. Little Mai is properly like a normal Moomin size. Yes. Not very little at all in this book. Well, so what's interesting, I think, is the way that the restrictions of the form have informed the story. So this is the first time that we've had an indoor Moomin story, and that's because they've built a great set. Why would you not use it, you know? Tova's always writing these journey stories that have got loads of nature and outdoorsy bits. This is all indoors because, of course it is, they've got this great dollhouse, and, you know, you couldn't really easily make a little Mai that is small enough compared to everybody else without making the set huge. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like, it's set at night with all the lights on because how else would you take pictures inside that set? Yeah. I mean, and it's an incredibly detailed doll's house. It's beautiful. There's little pictures of the family on the walls yeah. and stuff like that. As you said, there's a whole story can happen because of the fact that it's much bigger and it's got all of these different people in. So basically everything that would normally happen in a Moomin book happens <laughs> inside the house. I guess what happened is, here's a really fun dollhouse with all of your characters in it. Knock yourself out. Like, it's much more like child's play in a way. It's much more like what you would actually do if you had a dollhouse and some dolls. You would make this story that, you know, move through the rooms, up and down the stairs, playing with all the little objects. Yeah, in some ways, it's just kind of an example of what you can do with this toy. Yeah. And in some ways, it's less of a book and more of a sculpture. And it was never fully meant, I don't think, to be a book. It's never really been released in English. Even in the early Finnish experience of it, much more was made of the dollhouse, which yeah. I believe is in the Moomin Museum. The writing of this book is good. Yeah. Like, I liked reading this book more than A Dangerous Journey. I think this amateur translator did a really good job. Yes. There's an interesting thing around, like, villain is like, that's what Stinky is. Yeah. It's not a bad thing. Yes. Like, when you hear villain in the Moomin House, you think, the villain in the Moomin House. And I guess it's supposed to have a double meaning. Yeah. But in a way, it's just his job. He's just a pirate. And the Moomins are pretty chill with that. In fact, in this book, it's revealed that Moomin Papa has been, all this time, a secret criminal. It's really funny that that's not in his memoirs, because when we were reading memoirs of Moomin Papa, he was like, obviously there's stuff I haven't put in here because it's not suitable for young readers. Yeah, that must have been it. Yeah. Some of it is his travels with Stinky, clearly. 
I wanted to talk about smells in this story. It's a very smell-forward story. Like, it starts with the wonderful aroma of wood and turpentine in the workshop where little Mai's bedding down. And then she goes in the kitchen and there's this horrible smell of sulphur and rotten eggs. And then later, when she's going through the whole house, she meets Minnie. Minnie's hanging around actually outside the house because of her hyperosmia. And hyperosmia is a big word that little Mai doesn't know. And she seems to be collecting big words. So she really likes it. What it means is that you can smell things really strongly. And then when we get to the bit where we're in the loft with Snufkin reading all the children a story, it smells wonderfully of autumn. It feels like a little bit like the first one where we're moving through characters from different books. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got Misabel, who's from Summer. We've got the Ancestor and Grandpa Grumble and Toft, who are from Moomin Valley in November. Got... References to Sniff's Cave from Comet and Moomin Papa's travels from his memoirs. And it's got like another very nice like line that comments on the books of like, oh no, not another another natural natural disaster, disaster, said Moomin Mama. And I do wonder if some of the wider characters, some of them might also be from the comics. Yeah. To me, this book is another meta book, but this book is more about her collecting all of the things she loved together. Yeah. Like, this is like a celebration of everything that she loved about the movement. This is maybe where she gets to rediscover the joy that her creations maybe weren't giving her when she wrote Dangerous Journey. Yeah, I mean, that's entirely plausible. They're three years apart. Did you say it was, this was 1980? Yeah. She's getting on towards the end of her life at this point. Mm. Again, it's another text that is gathering together the strands that she has been working with. They're all in the house together. Normally, she takes some of them out for a book, yeah. right? And you're like, whoa, where are they gone? <laughs> in this version, everything's in. She's just crammed as many in as she can. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I kind of like that about it. Yeah. It's nice to look at the pictures, but I don't think they're very effective as a storybook picture. No, that's true. It's also true that you and I are looking at a scan. Yes, and the pictures aren't particularly clear. It could be that in the book it's easier to see. And also these were taken before the advent of modern photography abilities that we have now. Yeah. You couldn't do digital captures or Photoshop. All of those no. things weren't there, so you couldn't do as much. I mean, given that, I think they're pretty good. Yeah. Her brother who took the pictures was also an artist, wasn't yes. he? Yes. Yeah. Again, it's an archetypal Moomin story because... Stinky gets absorbed into the family. Yeah. And that's what every villain, every antagonist, every new character that happens with, you know? Yeah. And even though he smells so bad. Well, they're having him stay under the veranda with an air purifier. <laughs> which is fair. Like, yeah. It's working for everyone now. <laughs> Everybody is in the position that they often are in of like a basic happiness, a basic positivity, apart from... Moomin Papa, who as well as being a secret pirate, is also showing other signs of having a kind of midlife, late life crisis. He's sleeping in a sleeping bag because he can't be asked to make the bed. I mean, I relate to it. It's very practical. It's also like... Giving very depressed Moomin Papa vibes. In this last book of the Moomins, everyone's okay. (laughs) Apart from Moomin Papa. And what does this say about her own papa? <laughs> Maybe he's not depressed when he's on the boat doing villainous acts with right, Stinky. Right, right. 
I mean, he's always wanted to run away to sea. No one would mind if he went off to sea. No. Moomin Mama would be a little bit sad, but I feel like as long as Moomin Troll stays, she's all right. I wanted to talk about this little character moment between Moomin Troll and the Snork Maiden. The Snork Maiden says, Moomin Troll, you won't forget to come and protect me. No, no, replied Moomin Troll kindly. You only need remind me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how their relationships got by this stage. Remind me to kidnap you. Remind me to come for you. (laughs) He's becoming his dad now. There was a bit of fat phobia in this book too. With the Groke. I mean, it would have been fine if they just said the Groke is too big, but they said the Groke is too fat. Like, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because fat is a descriptive word and people reclaiming fat as a word use it as such. I know many fat people, I think you might be one of them, who insist on being called fat. Yes. And for many of us who were brought up in a different time, it feels very difficult to do that. Fat was a big slur in my childhood. Yeah. So people are reclaiming that word. And if we're reclaiming that word and it's just a descriptor, then in both these books, it's a question mark for me about whether it's fat phobia because it's describing a physical relation. But it's not necessarily saying the Groke is a lesser person. And same with the Hemulin. It was worse in the Hemulin. It gave an exact weight and it was very judgmental in the last book. Yeah, that's true. So be aware that that's in a dangerous journey, yeah. Yeah. Dangerous journey, clear cut, fat phobia. Whereas here, what it says is, do you think it's the Groke again? Of course not. The Groke is far too fat. She would be stuck fast in the doorway. Anyway, she doesn't smell. We are dealing with a relatively small villain, a diminutive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's little Mai who's fat phobic, which is upsetting. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's 1980. It surprises me not a bit. Oh, my goodness. I mean, even stuff from 2010 will be full of fat phobia. Even stuff from 2023 will be full of fat phobia. I think the other book, I think The Genderous Journey, is quite a lot more fat phobic than this. And I think it is okay to say the Groke wouldn't fit through the door. I don't think that's fat phobic. That's just, you know, a statement of relative size. But there is a certain glee in the Groke is far too fat. She would be stuck fast in the doorway. There's a certain viciousness to that, which is not merely a statement of relative size. And it's disappointing to find these moments of fat phobia in the Moomin books because the Moomin books have got very good fat representation as a general rule. And particularly it's disappointing with these two because they're for very young readers. Yeah, but that's also super normal in picture books. I want to talk a little bit about the concept of a secret and that everybody's got secrets. I think we should read a little bit aloud from that bit because that's my favourite bit. So everybody's been milling around, like trying to solve this mystery. People have started wondering, where's Moomin Papa? Moomin Papa has finally emerged from his sleeping bag of depression, put on his hat, come downstairs (laughs) to explain. Stinky, said Moomin Papa. Come out, you've disgraced us both. Do you know him? asked Moomin Mama cautiously. In a way, answered Moomin Papa. We are sort of old secret acquaintances. You know, sometimes one may have one secret acquaintance, which mustn't necessarily be introduced to the family. Hmm, said Moomin Mama. Is that right, said Little Mai, the likes of us, flogging ourselves to death, trying to save your house, and you just out and about with scoundrels, having fun, secretly? And Moomin Papa became cross and said, You also have secrets. They are probably huge and absolutely dreadful. 
I'm sure everyone in this very house has secrets which you truly hope that other people never find out. Ha! cried Stinky for the first time in the whole state of affairs. I know all kinds of things about this lot, shall I tell you? <laughs> Don't you dare, interrupted Moomin Troll. <laughs> it's a great moment. I mean, he's a very complex character, Moomin Papa. He's feeling the weight of his responsibilities as a papa. He's like, you know, it's very hard when you're a dad. People have expectations of you. and Sometimes you want to do things that are not in that mould, blah, blah, blah. Not to be essentialist about it, but I know a lot of dads like that. That do the bare minimum, but feel like they're doing the most possible ever. And feel that they need an escape from their family and have a right to certain secrets from their family. Well, there's also an interesting element, though. Of course, to a certain extent, Tuve's sexuality was her secret, right? Yeah, that too. And so when Moomin Papa says, you've all got secrets, don't go sharing each other's secrets. Yeah. There's an element of like her saying, you know, leave me in too licky yeah <laughs> alone like let us sail in our boat around and live on an island and don't inquire yeah it's not your business yeah but you're right it is very traditional masculinity well you wouldn't catch moomin mama having a secret other life would you i mean i would like her to but i do not think she does we want her to please have one yeah i thought that was great about the secrets It was a good sort of plea for everybody gets to have their own private secret life inside their head, even when you live in a massive, massive family with practically no privacy. The fact that there's so many people in this version of the Moomin house is like Tuve's childhood. Like she was in this kind of chaotic house where artists and all sorts of different people, adventurers, political activists, activists, like exciting people turned up and became part of the household. She also decided to go and live on an island for half the year with just one other person. And even they decided to stop talking after a while. an interesting little excursion that we've done yeah at the end of this season we ended the first season with Finn Family Moomin' Troll and we're ending this season with something very strange that nobody's ever really heard of yeah in a way though both episodes have been similar in that the second episode of Finn Family Moomin' Troll was us finding lots of problems within the books and with these we've got some problems yeah when we come back again we will of course be continuing our non-dangerous journey carrying on with the storybooks shall we do what would snuffkin do let's so at this point in every episode we like to be agony aunts but via the medium of snuffkin you listener can send in your problems your queries your questions to us we're at the pod goblin on instagram and twitter and our email is the at gmail.com this week we are doing another of our questions that we've sourced from the literary classics so this question is from max max says 
I wore my wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, and my mother called me Wild Thing. So I told her, I'll eat you up. And then I was sent to bed without eating anything. What would Snufkin do? So what is this classic, Dave? This classic, I'm sure many listeners know. Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. What would Snufkin do if his actions caused a rupture with somebody and that somebody sent Snufkin to bed without his supper? Well, Snufkin doesn't let himself be sent to bed, nor does he need to be fed supper by somebody else. I think, first of all, Snufkin would not have threatened anybody as directly as Max has. Mm. He's got a half-sister who is full of mischief. He's experienced much mischief around him, and he's relatively tolerant of mischief-makers. In the book, of course, part of Max's mischief is to literally threaten a dog, endanger an animal. That is quite a violent act and quite an unmoomin land act. It is. Although they get close occasionally with shining light into crab's eyes or whatever. Transforming poor antlions. Yes, they they don't treat antlions very well. But I think he might say, have you thought about how your mum might feel in this? Because he does tend to be quite empathetic. Yeah. I think first he would feed Max because it's very yes. hard to have empathy and think about how other people are feeling when your basic needs aren't being met. Yes, and we know Snufkin feeds children when they need it. Yeah, so he'd give him some beans. Give him some beans, put him (laughs) to work tarring the top of a house. And then Max would have got his wiggles out a bit from tarring the top of the house and then Max might be invited to listen to a little song or a little story. A story that might give some example of what you might do in this sort of situation, that's right. Yeah. I think he would be invited to consider his mum's perspective. He might even be asked, did doing that make you happy? Yeah. And I think if Max sat down and thought about it, the answer would be no. Yeah. I mean, in that story, Max will go off and have these adventures with some other characters. Wild things. And they will behave similarly to him. He will get some kind of perspective on what it's like to be fully wild. And he'll choose to go back to his mother, to go back to his life. And in fact, his mother will feed him, even though she threatens not to. He would tell Max about going to a wild place with wild things and let Max fully play out that fantasy of wildness in a safe and contained way so that Max is ready to return to the relationship which is ruptured with his mother in a sort of more regulated, full-bellied and calm way. Because the thing is that you can't come back from something like that in a hungry, wild state. Like That's a completely unreasonable thing to expect of a child. Even if you as the grown-up feel really angry about what the child has done, and that is completely valid, it's not a nice thing that Max has done, Max isn't ready at the beginning of the book when all this happens. You can't just go and make Max apologise to his mother. There's an emotional journey to go on, and there's some like physical sustenance that he needs to take in before like he can be his more snufkin self and consider others' feelings. In some ways, what Snufkin would do is what Maurice Sendak, the writer of the book, did. The book itself is almost a kind of archetypal Snufkin story that teaches the reader about what they might do in a circumstance. 
with lots of adventure and excitement and daring pursuits thrown in, which is indeed a very Snufkin story. Snufkin would not be in Max's circumstance. Nor would Snufkin be in Mum's circumstance. He did threaten his kids. He did, but he did not feed them. He did feed them, and when he threatened them, it didn't work, and he saw that it didn't work, and he stopped. So maybe that's what he would tell Max's mum about at that time when he had all the little woodies. Right. Yes, that is what he would do. He'd be like, oh, you know what? Once I had 24 children (laughs) and they wouldn't behave and they didn't like the stories and there wasn't enough food and they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. And I tried threatening them and it didn't work. Maybe your little Woody upstairs would like some food. The other thing that we do on this podcast is we like to do some recommendations of things at the end of each episode. The first set of recommendations we do are called the Spirit of the Moomins, and they are recommending text or other media that has a spirit of the Moomins about them. So what do you have this week, Nina? First, I'm going to tell you what I wish I could recommend, but practically cannot, but to tell you anyway. This second picture book, Villain in the Moomin House, really reminded me of a picture book that I experienced while it was being written and photographed in about 2009 when I was 17. It's called How to Stay Sober When You'd Rather Be Dead. It's by Rachel Strether. And it is a photo picture book. So similar to this setup, every page is a photograph of some dolls in a doll's house with a sparingly small amount of text underneath. And it's a story of Sybil, who is like an off-brand Barbie. Sybil is an alcoholic, and she's just started the 12 Steps program. And she's not into the God side of it at all, and she finds that stuff really tedious. She's managing her sobriety, but she gets so bored. I want to stress this is not a picture book for children. No. But it is a really great picture book for adults. Sadly, I can't find it anywhere. I don't even have a copy. I last saw it probably about 10 years ago, and so I cannot recommend it to you because you will not be able to find it. My real recommendation of a book that you can probably get your hands on is called The Boy Who Climbed Into the Moon by David Almond. So this book is more like The Dangerous Journey. It's an imaginative journey taken by a boy called Paul. Paul starts the day in his parents' flat, And he's quite a shy kind of boy, and he's quite bored. And so he decides to try out what happens if he just takes every suggestion that comes to him. This involves some really interesting like determinism stuff, like what I was talking about with Susanna, when she says, I'll decide they're nice and then they'll be nice. He goes to the top floor of his block of flats and looks out through the telescope, and he's supposed to be looking for his neighbour's brother, who's supposed to be in his garden. And he looks through the telescope and he can't see him. And the neighbour says, well, have you imagined him? And Paul's like, no. And she's like, well, how can you expect to see him if you haven't imagined him? And so then Paul imagines a short man with curly hair. And then he looks through the telescope and there he is. You know, you were saying you wished that The Dangerous Journey was really a journey book. That's what this is. It's sort of a very yes and sort of improv style. What if we tried this kind of book? It's really beautiful. It is a big favourite of Matt Miller from Even the Trunchbull. 
What's yours? I have not read that one, but I have it on my shelf looking at me. It's great. You'd like it. I will read it. I bought it on your recommendation. But yes, now it's my turn to recommend something. And so I said earlier on that one of my favourite kinds of stories is the story of a child going into a magical world. And there's a lot of films that do this that I love. My Spirit of the Moomins this week is Where the Wild Things Are, the film made by Spike Jones. It's his version of a children's film. So if you're going to watch this and you're like, oh, it was recommended as a Moomin light film, know that like the source material... It's dark yeah. and it's a kind of reinvention of where the wild things are. When the film came out, I was working doing stories to children and all of the people who worked with me didn't like the film. They were like, whoa, this is like almost a teenage film. And it kind of is. It's on the cusp of, of teenage. It's about a very troubled, emotionally volatile child who behaves badly to his mother and badly to his sister and badly to lots of people, to himself, and then runs away because he's done something so bad. How can his mum forgive him? He runs away into the forest and then finds himself in the land where the wild things are. And we meet the wild things. They're puppet-like beings. They're like very big. They capture Maurice Sendak's brilliant pictures very well. Mm. They're played by great actors like James Gandolfini from The Sopranos <laughs> is like the main one. And he's the main wild thing because he is Max in a way. And he behaves like Max. And they, they then play out the same kind of power dynamics that were happening in his home, but in this different world with these big creatures. And they have like love and hate. And they, it looks like everything's going well. And then everything goes wrong. And why do people always get upset with each other? And why can't we get on? And why can't we always be happy? And all of the feelings yeah. that you feel as a young person and as an adult. He goes through all of that. And then he goes home and gets fed. And it was still hot. But the reason it has a spirit of the Moomins. It is a bit like the dangerous journey. It is like going into this world and having these adventures with these strange creatures who, are they scary? Are they not? Will they eat you? Will they not? It's a bit like the villain in the Moomin house in that it's puppets, it's models. But yeah, that's my spirit of the Moomins this week. The next thing we do is we recommend a podcast that has a spirit of the Podgoblin's hat. Now, last week, when it was my recommendation, I meant to say that the perfect recommendation that should be recommended here is even the Trunchbull, which is Nina's other podcast, because they do a picture book every week. But we've already recommended that. So I just wanted to mention that we should have done it in these two episodes. And it's Nina's turn this week. So what's your spirit of the Podgoblin's hat? My spirit of the Podgoblin's hat is called All About Agatha. And it's a project very like ours in that it's going through the whole bibliography of an author from the very beginning to the very end. The author that they're doing this about is Agatha Christie. They've narrowed it a bit because Agatha Christie wrote some things under a different name and they haven't included those. They've done all 66 of the mystery books written by Agatha Christie. And like us, I think, the hosts, Kemper and Catherine, have seen some chronology stuff that maybe you wouldn't when you read them out of order, some patterns and some evolutions, the trends in her writing and the, the things that she's interested in. And a very interesting thing that they've noticed is that Agatha Christie is always writing about love triangles. 
especially after her first husband left her for another younger woman. But in an Agatha Christie love triangle, the original couple always gets back together in the end. It's like a bit of wish fulfillment. Uh So if you spot a love triangle in Agatha Christie, the way it always goes is the original couple who you thought were broken up always get back together in the end. They evaluate the works of Christie from a modern lens and, of course, a bit like what we have, but even worse because it's Agatha Christie. There are lots of things in Agatha Christie's work that's really distasteful to modern listeners and modern readers, and they cover all that as well. They also evaluate them all on a 50-point system and have ranked all of them. And I would recommend that ranking if you want to read some Christie and don't want to bother with the duds, just like read the top third of the All About Agatha rankings. They're really good. They've finished now as well. So what I do sometimes is like I'll read an Agatha Christie and then I'll go and listen to what they said because obviously they completely spoil them if you don't want to know who the murderer is or whatever, like don't listen to them first. But if you just want to know about Agatha Christie and the way that she works and the tricks of her trade, which is what they're very good at picking apart, that's the podcast for you. That's all for episode 12. It's also all for season two of the Pod Goblins Hat. We'll be back soon enough and we're going to come back with the stone cold classic Moominland Midwinter. But before we go, here are the tiny cliffhangers for the next season. What might a Hemulin be like in the winter? Will Moomin Troll survive a season without either his mother or his snuffkin? And... How does the Moomin family understand the Christmas? Until next time, remember that everyone has secrets and that they are probably huge and absolutely dreadful. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.